0: Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And make sure you sign up for that travel club. Yes, because we are going to some fantastic places for 2023 and stay tuned for 2024. Again, the website is TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and check it out and sign up so that you can join in on all of the fun Joining me today is Larry Jones, director of outreach for the Martha's Vineyard African American Heritage Trail. Yes, the Martha's Vineyard African American Heritage Trail. You don't want to miss that. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. We'll showcase the WNDR Museum, a very unique and immersive art museum. But right now I've got a little travel news. United Airlines continues to hire. Despite unemployment setbacks, United Airlines plans to ramp up hiring with its new global in-flight training center at George Bush Intercontinental Airport, which officials said will have the capacity to train around 600 flight attendants per month. Following mass layoffs due to COVID-19 pandemic, more than 780,000 individuals were employed in the airline industry nationwide as of November, making an 18.6% increase from May of 2020. According to data provided by the U.S. Department of Transportation, United Airlines officials said its newly expanded 56,000 square foot global in flight training center at Houston Intercontinental Airport will train and hire 15,000 workers, create 1,800 jobs in the greater Houston area in 2023. According to Phil Griffith, Vice President of Operations for United Airlines at Houston's airport, The air travel provider has continued to work on several projects through the pandemic, including the $32 million training center and a roughly $100 million early baggage system facility. While those projects were not included in Houston Intercontinental's terminal redevelopment program, which aims to overhaul the airport's international terminal complex, Houston Airport System officials said the project has continued largely uninterrupted, despite challenges posed by the pandemic. Global in-flight training center? Yes, United Airlines officials said the new training center more than doubles the size of their previous facility, with the addition of new classrooms, training stations, and an aquatic center featuring a 125,000-gallon pool that will allow flight attendants to train to practice safe evacuation strategies in the case of a water landing. With the training centers opening, Griffith said the company is in position to continue hiring new employees following the company's heavy workforce losses during the pandemic. United Airlines lost nearly 29,000 employees nationwide from November 2019 to November 2020, U.S. Department of Transportation data shows, representing roughly 31.6% of its national workforce. With an increased fleet and renewed travel demand, the airline hired 15,000 people in 2022 and is on track to another 15,000 in 2023. It was also noted that United Airlines' $100 million early baggage system facility At Intercontinental is slated to be completed this fall. The new facility is designed to temporarily store individual bags that arrive early until their specified departure. While the new baggage system facility is not part of the Houston Airport System's $1.3 billion international terminal redevelopment program, Griffith said the facility will be connected to the new lobby included in that project. Work on the international terminal redevelopment program, which has been under construction since 2019, continued largely unimpeded throughout the pandemic. The project, which is on track to be largely completed by 2024, will include an overhaul of the international terminal complex that will accommodate more than 15 international carriers. On to a little bit of gloomy news, U.S. issues a new travel advisory for Costa Rica. Costa Rica is a popular getaway given its close proximity to the United States with stunning beaches, lush rainforests, and welcoming locals. What is normally considered to be a safe destination for travelers, Costa Rica has had an uptick in violent crime. As has been the landscape of world events over the past few years, what seems to be a normal can change very quickly. Some say rule number one of traveling to a foreign country is to always be aware of your surroundings. Bad things can happen anywhere at any time, whether it's petty pickpockets or more dangerous situations. So it's important to heed caution at all times, getting too comfortable in an unfamiliar place can be a big mistake. The U.S. government has a four-level system to determine the outlook on safety for each country. Level 1 means that U.S. citizens should exercise normal precautions. Level 2, exercise increased caution. Level 3, reconsider travel plans. Level 4, citizens should not travel. Earlier this week the U.S. issued a Level 2 alert for Costa Rica, advising Americans to take extra precautions due to an increase in an uptick in violent crime. It was most noted that the recent criminal activity has been taking place in the capital city of San Jose, which is home to the country's biggest airport. San Jose is the main hub where most visitors begin their Costa Rica adventures. A recent report showed American tourists went to Costa Rica in droves, more than 1.2 million visitors arriving by plane. The guidelines provided by the U.S. Embassy in Costa Rica. Be watchful when in a public area. Be aware of your surroundings and immediately leave any area that does not feel safe. Do your best not to stand out in a crowd. Don't be flashy. It is best to walk around at night within a group on well-lit streets. Provide someone you trust with your contact information. When leaving home, hotel, or vacation rental, it is advised to always keep doors and windows locked, and when driving, it's advised to keep doors locked at all times. The embassy also recommends its citizens enroll in STEP, the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program, a government program to inform travelers of the latest security alerts. And if someone is in immediate danger, the Costa Rica emergency phone is 911, just like in the United States. And speaking of travel advisories, four Americans were kidnapped in Mexico earlier this week, with two found dead in the city of Matomoros, the Mexican border city with Texas one of the travelers went to mexico for medical tourism for a procedure and three of her friends came along for company and of course for driving upon crossing the border were pretty much ambushed they believed that it was mistaken identity that they were mistaken for haitian drug lords and this is why their vehicles were blocked in and fired upon two were killed in the attack and two were kidnapped. However, the two that were kidnapped were taken to a Texas hospital, one with a bullet wound and one who was uninjured. Matamoros is a city in Mexico located just across the Rio Grande from Brownsville, Texas. The U.S. State Department has issued a level four do not travel advisory for U.S. citizens thinking of going to the region. Citing crime and kidnapping, Mexico is the second most popular destination for medical tourism globally, with an estimated 1.4 to 3 million patients traveling into the country to take advantage of inexpensive treatment. According to Patients Beyond Borders, an international health care consulting company, Motomoris, however, is not considered a primary medical travel destination largely because there are no internationally accredited medical centers or specialty clinics there or in the immediate region. There are also some other regions in Mexico that are on a level four and do not travel. So again, it's very important that you go to travel.state.gov, go to international travel, put in the country that you're visiting, and you will see the travel alerts. Just this past January, there was an alert issued for incidents that were occurring between Uber drivers and taxi drivers, where some Uber passengers were also caught in the mix. Lufthansa Airlines has unveiled new cabins with over-the-top first and business-class suites. First-class suites for two, seven business-class options to choose from, Reclining premium economy seats that don't encroach on the passengers behind, Lufthansa's new Allegris cabins are a game changer. Yes, they had a sweeping overhaul of the airline's international passenger experience. Lufthansa is the German carrier. And if you're talking about the Allegris first class up front, Lufthansa is introducing an intimate cabin of just three cavernous suites across one row. It will be first introduced in 2024 on the Airbus A350-900. First-class passengers will get to choose between two different seating arrangements while all three suites will be fully enclosed with floor-to-ceiling walls and sliding doors for a personalized cocoon. One suite will be extra special. The center section, a suite plus, will allow for two passengers to travel together in one double seat with the ability to dine and recline together. Uniquely, the seat also turns into a full-size bed without a divider in the middle. Solo passengers will also have the option to book the Suite Plus for extra space. All first-class suites will feature a dining table, 32-inch or 43-inch 4K monitor, and a personal wardrobe area. Allegra's business class passengers will have the choice of a whopping seven seat types with options such as a large suite with a door and minibar and a seat with an extra long bed that's nearly eight inches longer than others. All business class passengers, regardless of seat type, will be able to enjoy direct aisle across wireless charging, Bluetooth connectivity and heating and cooling functionality at each seat. Allegra's premium economy will have a fixed back shell, meaning reclining won't encroach on the passenger behind. There will be a 15.6-inch 4K monitor, wireless charging stations, leg rests, a separate cocktail table, a personal reading light, a coat hook, and a water bottle holder. An economy class, even an economy, the new Allegra's cabins promise a comfier ride. I'm happy to see that they did not neglect economy. Usually we see all the upgrades in business and first, but this time we will see them in economy. So each coach seat will feature a 13.3 inch 4K entertainment monitor, USB, C and A power outlets, a Bluetooth headphone connectivity, and travelers will also have the option of booking a neighbor free seat which allows flyers to block an adjacent seat for more personal space. I definitely like that idea. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, Larry Jones, director of outreach for the Martha's Vineyard African-American Heritage Trail, will join me. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com, and make sure you sign up for the travel club. We're going to some fantastic places, one of which we're celebrating Advantage International's 25th anniversary. Yes, we are. We're going to Croatia on a privately chartered yacht. Yes, only 17 cabins on board, and we're almost sold out, so don't delay. You want to make sure that you sign up. We are going to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. I'm thinking about all the theme parties right now. But in addition, of course, we are touring a fantastic destination going to Croatia. We're going out of Split and into Dubrovnik. And we're going to tour along the way, stopping at some of the islands, culinary experiences, cooking class, wine tasting, kayaking, and again, boatload of fun. Yes, pun intended. (laughs) On board, it's just 17 cabins. It's going to be an intimate experience, a fun experience, a celebratory experience. The dates are July 28 to August 6. You don't want to miss out on this because we're going to have a fantastic time. I'm going to tell you one thing. Everyone who went with us in 2021 more than half have already signed up. That's how much of a great time that we had. We just couldn't wait to do it again. And we want to share that with you. So come on with us and have some fun. Again, Croatia, July 28 to August 6. Croatia is fantastic. And one thing I will tell you, the food is amazing. Yes, it is. And the wine too. Make sure you head on over to TravelingCulturati.com to check it out. And later in the year and soon to be announced will be Greece going into Athens and then also to Crete. Again, another fabulous time that we're looking to have. That's going to be the first week of September, September 1 through September 9. We're going to finish up the 2023 summer in Greece. Yes, We're going to visit Santorini and going over to Spinolonga. And of course, you know, going to Athens, you want to see the sights, you want to see the Parthenon, and then going to Crete, another fabulous destination. That part of the journey will be an all-inclusive resort on the beach. And then, of course, visiting the iconic and Instagram-worthy Santorini. So again, that's going to be September 1 through 9, 2023. Stay tuned. That will be available very soon on the website for you to book. Don't delay because people are calling every day asking when is Greece going to be ready. So I'm quite sure as soon as it's going to be ready and posted, it's going to sell out pretty quickly. So don't delay with that.
1: And now, Javon's Travel Minute.
0: One of my group travelers recently said to me, This is the first group trip I've been on, and I'm realizing how much I've missed and didn't learn about a destination when I've done my own travel itinerary. Often, when we plan our own itineraries, we underestimate the value of a good tour program itinerary and good guide. We may book the sites and attractions, but without that organization and upon visiting, we don't get the information about what we're seeing. Planning a travel itinerary might seem a little overwhelming at first, but with just a little preparation and guidance, you can create a great experience. Start by getting inspiration. Watch movies, read books, go on Instagram. Now, just go beyond that IG worthy photo and use the online search for top things to do at that destination. Then make your personal list the things you want to do most then mix it up while sightseeing is great mix up the type of activities you'll want to do pick historic sites cultural activities adventure and exploration don't forget about the r and r yes make sure you've given yourself enough time if that list of things to do and see are long Then build in enough time to do the things that are a priority to you and create some downtime for you as well. Sometimes just booking a trip that's too short will make you overbook and you're just exhausted and not enjoyable. Don't try to do everything. If some things are similar, pick the one you most want. Schedule half days along with some full days. Be mindful of logistics where to stay, as well as a location and transportation to get to the things you'll want to do that are important. Timing is everything. You want to pick the right time to go. Not only about the crowds, which you'll want to limit, because that can mean long lines, but also inclement weather, those times of the year where the weather can change on a dime. It's going to be less predictable. Be flexible and cushion your schedule. Giving yourself enough time at locations is important too. Always consider the what ifs like traffic jams, time changes, long lines, all of those things. So you just want to build those things in and give yourself some of that flex time. Now go out there and go on an adventure. I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati, and that was your Travel Minute. culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people it can be born of the arts music food and sometimes politics and strife this is the culture report and i'm excited to share with you the martha's vineyard african-american heritage trail chatting with me today is larry jones who is the director of outreach for the Martha's Vineyard African American Heritage Trail. Hello Larry and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited about it because once I learned of the MV African American Heritage Trail, I've been trying to get someone on for quite some time, so we were successful with getting you on with us today because I don't think it's an area that people would automatically think of as having an African American Heritage Trail. So Tell us about the discovery of the trail.
2: The trail was started by two ladies, Elaine Weintraub and Carrie Tanker. And they began their journey in 1989. And by 1998, they had their first location, which is what they call in the highlands of Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts, on the island of Martha's Vineyard. And it continued on from there. Most of the trail sites were in the highlands area of Oak Bluffs and expanded from there. And the trail started out as a walking trail within what they call the highlands of Oak Bluffs, because that's where most of the community established itself at first in the late 1800s by what they call the Baptist Temple.
0: I'm a huge fan of the movie Inkwell. How close is it in relationship to Inkwell?
2: Well, in Oak Bluffs, everything is pretty much in walking distance. So there's a lot of walking done in Oak Bluffs. But from the highlands... I would say it's about a mile in total, but it's a very, very easy walk because you can actually walk me through town and you're seeing a lot of different sites within that area of interest. So it makes the walk very, very easy.
0: Okay, and we'll talk about some of the other sites, but for those who may not know, tell us a little bit about Inkwell and the name of it. And again, if you haven't seen the movie, it is a fantastic movie to watch.
2: Well, but Inkwell is, how can I say It's actually a a recent discovery. When I say recent, I'm talking 1960s. There's a short history and there's a long history. So they're saying that it was a beach that was relegated to the Black community, but that's not true at all. It was actually started by the Black youth on the island. And basically, they wanted to get away from their parents. They didn't want to go to the same beach as their parents (laughs) because they Mm -hmm. were teens. And they would tell their friends, well, we're going to meet up at this beach. It was known as Town Beach. And they started naming it the Inkwell they said, we're going to meet up at the Inkwell at three o'clock or two o'clock. And that's what they would do. The teenagers would meet up. As the story goes, with would meet up at the Inkwell at a specific time so they could hang out with their friends. So that's how the name became more famous over the years. And it's really, really just a small beach within Martha's Vineyard, but it's very, very well known. And people always want to go see the Inkwell. And When they see it and say, that's it, I said, well, this is it, yes. (laughs) But it's in a very, 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 very nice area, I should say.
0: Okay. And is it on the Heritage Um, Trail?
2: Yes, we do pass by the Inkwell on the trail because it's incorporated within the trail itself. So people always want to know where it is, but there's a long history within that area which is called the Gold Coast, is where most of the community has built out since the 1950s. That's a Black community,
0: I should say. So how many stops are there on the MV, African-American Heritage Trail?
2: So in total, which we do not go to all the stops, in total, there are 36 stops. Oh, wow. Throughout the island. All right. So we have basically four trails that you can participate. And one of them is the walking trail, which is the original trail. Then we have what we call the Oak Bluffs Trail, which is a riding tour. Then we have an Oak Bluffs Egertown tour, which is a riding tour. And then we have an all-island tour, which you try and hit as many as the stops as possible within the time period. And then this year, we're going to have Black Business Trail, which is starting up this year. So it's going to be five in total. They're all going to be very, very interesting to you. But so the it- ones that I would concentrate on, right? if you're Go going ahead. to come to Oak Bluffs and you don't have a lot of time... I would concentrate on the Oak Bluffs Riding Tour or the Oak Bluffs Walking Tour or the Eggertown Oak Bluffs Tour. So those are the ones I would definitely concentrate on.
0: Okay. And so what's going to go into the Black Business Trail?
2: Well, basically, we're going to highlight past and present Black businesses on the island through the Black Business Directory. And we're doing that with another partner, NGRE, who's created the Black Business Directory of Martha's Vineyard. So we're trying to highlight those businesses that people have had and people continue to have on the island. So that's why we're doing the Black Business. People are always interested in knowing where, where we do our business. So we're trying to highlight that to those people who come and visit the island and want to know where they can actually participate in the economic services that those businesses provide.
0: Absolutely, supporting Black businesses. And I think that's very important to any African-American heritage trail so that you can support Black businesses along the way. And so it seems like there's a lot of focus with Oak Bluffs and the Highlands. I understand you said it's still relatively small area that you can walk, but tell us about those significant points of Oak Bluffs.
2: All right, so the Highlands is where our community started to build out. And then from there, it continued on. So that is then, when Oak Bus was created, it was created as a tourist destination, not for Black folks, but for the community of white Europeans in the New England area. So the first thing that was built was what they called the Martha's Benya Camp Meeting Association, which is called the Methodist Campgrounds. And then came in Cottage City, and the campgrounds were actually the catalyst to us coming to the island because it was run by the Methodists and the Methodists were very welcoming at that point. They were into suffrage. They were into prison reform. They were into women's rights. They were into abolition. So we had an audience within the Methodist campgrounds and we started coming there. And then from there, we started to buy in. And we started to buy in, especially when the Baptists started having their, what they called, camp meetings, which was placed in the highlands. And that's where we started to flourish, right in the highlands of Martha's Vineyard Oak Bluffs.
0: I've never been to Martha's Vineyard. I don't know why. I mean, it's always been on my list, but I don't know why I haven't made it there yet. But I'm trying to get a visual of the area because I know it's a big vacation destination for many people, those who are seeking out the African-American Heritage Trail and those who are not. So I want to understand Location or locale. So if you're just going to Martha's Vineyard, are you still all within the same area that you would be for the African American Heritage Trail?
2: How can I explain Martha's Vineyard? It's an island off the coast of Massachusetts, off the coast of Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. And it's about six miles off the coast, it has six towns, one of them being Oak Bluffs, where the majority of our community congregates during the summer, mainly through the months of August, last week in July. So you'll see a big black community within that area. Large home ownership of summer homes, of black residents in that area. So there's a lot of activities that take place on the island, catering to that community. In the Highlands, like I said, that's where the community started to build out. One of the first people to actually establish themselves there was a man by the name of Sam Birmingham as a summer resident, 1862, believe it or not. And then from there, it started really to build out in the Highlands when the Shearers and the West and the Baloo families started coming there on a regular basis for the summer. And they established themselves, they bought property, and the community continued to grow from there and spread out from the Highlands into the rest of the Oak Bluffs summer community. And by the 1950s, a big rush to buy houses in what they call the Cottage City area, which is a coastal part of Oak Bluffs. There was a large black buying spree within that area. They call it the Black Gold Rush. And that's where you will find a large contingency of our community within that area.
0: I see. And so along the trail, let's talk about some of those significant stops and maybe even some of the people that were instrumental during that time or in the creation of the trail.
2: All right. So within the Highlands, we can talk about Samuel Birmingham. He was in the Highlands also when he left the Methodist campgrounds. He bought in the Highlands. He bought four properties up there. Then we have what we call the Sharers, the Sharer Cottage, very, very well known. They were the really, really the catalyst to us building community in that area. Then came the West family, Isaac West, and his daughter is Dorothy West. So Dorothy West. You can say a wealthy Black family, Father Isaac was. She was a writer from the Harlem Renaissance era. She wrote two books of note. One of them was The Wedding, which more people are familiar with. The other one is The Living is Easy. And The Living is Easy is about the Boston Black elite in the 1940s. So it was the first book of its kind, written about a community that nobody knew of. And she brought light to that community, that middle class, upper middle class community, within the Boston area, and was fashioned after her family. The West family is kind of a remarkable family of achievement. When you look at the history, when you look at the name Isaac West, who is the father, his story is amazing in and of itself. So that's why we kind of looked at Dorothy West in a different light, because of her family and her family's history itself. It's pretty remarkable. Adam Clayton Powell Jr.'s home is in the Highlands. Family still owns that home. The Sherry home is still owned by them. That's from 1903. So they're going on 120 years of home ownership and business within the island. The Coleman family, they've been there since 1923. Still there on the island. So those are stops that we have in that area. So we have the Powell House, we have the Dorothy West House, we have the Colemans and we have the Sharers, all within the same area. That's where that community built out. And we also have what they call other areas of interest in there that we point out on the way. But those people that I just mentioned, they have specific plaques that are on the trail itself within the Highlands. Then we move on to what they call the St- School Street area, which is the next area of interest where our community used to be built at, were built out, mainly because it sits in between what we call the Baptist campgrounds and the Methodist campgrounds. And both of those organizations were willing and open organizations to black visitors. And then from there on, it moved into another area called the Art District. From the Art District, all these areas are connected now. And from the Art District, we then moved into what they call the Cottage City area. And the Cottage City, this is from late 1800s up into the 1950s when we started moving into the Cottage Area District. So this is how the community built itself out. And everything is connected in that way. So I would say it's about a one and a half square mile area that we're talking about where we are congregated and bigger in the longer run because more and more residents where they couldn't find in Cottage City, they spread out from there, specifically in Oak Bluffs.
0: Were they descendants of free blacks or were any of them previously enslaved? And are there any underground railroad stops, anything of that nature?
2: Isaac West was not enslaved, but he was from the Richmond, Virginia area. His mother might have been enslaved, and his grandmother and grandfather most likely were enslaved, but I can't say that he was enslaved. He was like 12 years old when he left Richmond, Virginia to start his business career, believe it or not. So that's why I say it's kind of remarkable. As far as Underground Railroad stops, we have two stops on our trail that are designated by the National Park Service as Underground Railroad Stops. One is in the town of Egertown, and one is in the town of what they call Aquina. So, those stops are designated as Underground Railroad stops. They are stops where people actually refreed themselves, <laughs> as they say, from slavery. In other words, they were captured and then they freed themselves again once they got to the island. So, those are two stops that are recognized by the National Park Service. Both of them were dedicated within the last three years.
0: So it sounds like there's a very rich and interesting history and trail that's been carved out. How much time should one give themselves to have the full experience?
2: Well, I would say the walking trail is about an hour. The Oak Bus Trail is about an hour and a half. And that's the Oak riding tour. And the Oak Bus Egertown tour is about two hours. Now, the full island tours is just about four and a half hours. Still. But it's interesting because if you've never been to the island before, it's a good way to see the whole island and learn some history also.
0: And yes.
2: go by as many towns as possible.
0: Yes, it sounds like it. And I'll definitely make sure that I get there within the year. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, what's the website for more information and for someone to book the trail?
2: The website is the Martha's Vineyard African-American Heritage Trail dot org. And the best way to contact us is lighting the trail at gmail dot com. All right. So it's lighting the trail at gmail dot com.
0: OK, that's um, L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, lighting the trail at gmail Lighting the trail,
2: correct. Yes. OK,
0: and the website is MV African-American Heritage Trail dot org.
2: You can just look it up. Look, Martha's Vineyard African-American Heritage Trail It'll come up on the website. People always look for it, and it'll come up right away. A lot of information there. But Like I said, this time of year, the best way to contact us, if you're bringing a group up, because we are an educational nonprofit. So if you want to bring a group up or you want to have a group of people take the trail at some time, contact us through the the LightingTheTrail at gmail.com, and we can start a conversation as to what you want to do and how you want to do it.
0: Yes. And you also have a stopper, too, that was part of the Green Book, I see.
2: Yes, we do. Let's put it this way. There were a lot of places of note in the Green Book on Martha's Vineyard. And one of them is called, which we dedicated this past year during Juneteenth, was Dunmere by the Sea. And that was dedicated Juneteenth. It was run by two brothers from New York City, and they eventually sold it. But there were many other sites, five that we know of total, that were within the Green Book on Martha's Vineyard. And we try to point as many of those out as possible because that's actually how people became more interested in Martha's Vineyard. They needed a place to stay. They look in the Green Book. We find this place in the Green Book. They stay there and they, what they call, we get the bug. And they want to come back to the island. And eventually they keep coming, coming, coming. And eventually they want to purchase. And that's how the community starts to build itself again and that's been going on for the last couple of years now people come to the island find a very very good interest very comfortable and then they want to further the experience here by becoming homeowners on the island so that's what happens yes a lot of that happens
0: and congratulations is in order to your 25th anniversary this year thank you absolutely and looking forward to it continuing to grow and learning more about the African-American Heritage Trail of Martha's Vineyard. Thank you again for joining me today. It was an honor and a pleasure. So when
2: you come up, just look us up.
0: This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit travelingculturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join the travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And we have a fascinating museum to tell you about. WNDR Museum. And on the phone to chat with me about it is creative director, David Allen. Hello, David, and welcome to Traveling Culturati.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: The WNDR Museum reimagines traditional museum experiences through interactive, immersive art and play. So tell me what that's all about.
1: It's participatory art. It's art that you can interact with. It's art that you can change or alter. I feel like we all want to leave a mark, and at our museum, you can everywhere. It also changes. It changes with you, or it's rotating throughout the day. There might be 15 different versions of one thing. We see that with interactivity and with motion, people connect on a different level, and we want to encourage curiosity and imagination.
0: So... Immersive, I understand. And of course, technology, I understand. So when you say that it's constantly changing, so the visitors, those who visit the museum, you contribute to how this art is changed?
1: Yes. Sometimes you contribute and it's temporary, and occasionally you'll contribute and it lasts, or there'll be elements. Even if it's analog, even if you leave a note behind and the note is up and people see it, we ask you a question in one exhibit, what do you know for sure? and people answer funny. (laughs) They answer serious, existential answers. It's a place to think. We're finding that being able to leave your mark like that, be it permanent or temporary, is fun, that people connect to it and keep coming back.
0: And really, that's what culture is all about and why it's kind of like the art imitates life or life imitates art. And I think that's what museums do. And it seems like an immersive experience that you have at your museum really is that participatory experience that can capture what's happening in the culture.
1: Sure. And I think that's why, as a curator, the conversation has to be had about equity and inclusivity and belonging in the arts. There's a fine art community that it feels like there's a lot of gatekeeping. And I feel like our role as a smaller museum is to do the opposite. So what stories do we have to tell? What experiences do we want to share? I think that's very important.
0: I understand. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about the Yayoi Kusama Infinity Mirror Room. (laughs) Yes. Am I Um, pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, Kusama.
1: (laughs) So she has a bunch of rooms that are her way into her own mind, her own mental health. You know, she suffers from a few conditions and one being OCD where Part of her coping mechanism was to obliterate herself, is what she would say. So just the idea of infinity is too much for us to process, right? So she would create these spaces that would lean into infinity, that would have so many dots that I couldn't possibly comprehend it. So we have three infinity rooms in our collection. And so we're going to put those in certain museums all over the country so people can kind of experience what that is. It's, you know, they're mirror rooms that go on forever as far as the eye can see, right? And sure, they look good, but there's some mental health awareness behind the background as well.
0: I absolutely love that. And I think now we're in this time where mental illness is front and center. Certainly the pandemic, I think, brought some things to light that were already there. It was kind of like lifting the carpet up, right? But also normalizing it to the extent of I think we've all been dealing with things for quite some time and maybe, you know, forever, but we've always put ourselves in this box of normalcy. And if you didn't fit within there, something was wrong. Where if we can really broaden that, we're not saying it's mental illness, but that we all process things in a different way. And maybe we're just not addressing or giving room <laughs> for us to yeah. process these. So, It then becomes something that we think is abnormal or mental illness, if I'm making sense. So, converting that to art, I think, is phenomenal or giving us a better insight to that.
1: And what better way for us to connect to each other, right? So, if we're raised in a certain system and your parents respond a certain way, if you deviate, you may feel abnormal. Or if the way you cope is unhealthy, it might be because your parents coped in a way that was unhealthy, right? So, art is a way to express maybe change in that or maybe you don't like how you cope, or maybe finding a better or a different way that's not maladaptive and you know art is a way for us to express things that words don't necessarily fully capture
0: tell us about the color wave by so so limited and how you're capturing sight sound and scent
1: so that one specifically it's really simple in the most beautiful way all you do is you text it a word and it finds the average and what the baseline, what the internet or what the world sees as would be a color or a color pattern or palettes that would connect to that word. So if I put in a sandy desert, it would give you an obvious answer, right? But if I put in the word pain or grief, what does it respond with? That's what's interesting to add color or to quantify words that aren't necessarily something we attach to sight.
0: So very sensory based.
1: Yes, yes. In Chicago, there's a room that has a box that takes cartridges that emits scents based on an image of a landscape. What does barren smell like? Hmm. Or if it's a forest, that might be a little more obvious, the scent. But that's really fun. It's fun collaborating and seeing what artists choose or their thought process. And it's often different than what you would expect. That's even better.
0: Yeah. And I love that you say here that no two visits to WNDR Museum are the same.
1: Yeah, and also, it really depends on where you are that day. You know, there are times where you're ready to be present, and if you go slow, you're going to be rewarded. In San Diego, like there are words hidden, there are phrases hidden that actually connect to each exhibit, but you have to look for them. Or there's a place to stand where we had nine of the best poets in the world record their own voice of them reading you a one and a half, two minute poem, and you don't see anything. But if you stand there, it shoots the audio into your head. That's beautiful. But often, People skip that because they're looking for an Instagrammable moment, right? So we reward visual aesthetic. That's beautiful, but also you just being present and taking time and being curious. You'll get more out of this.
0: W N D R. Is that an acronym?
1: It's the word wonder without vowels. So wonder.
0: Ah, gotcha. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah, a lot of people are confused. I understand. It's just wonder, it's just awe, it's excitement, it's curiosity. Just wonder without vowels.
0: I understand that the museum has already begun a nationwide expansion. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, we just opened up a new wonder in San Diego. We are currently in the process of building one in Seattle. And then Boston is after that. So the idea is just to expand. We're choosing local artists in a lot of the areas. There's a percentage that's local artists. I'm also choosing a lot of artists that are international, that represent a lot of varied voices, I think that's important. So each city has a different kind of style and a different taste and curating based on the city, but also through lines, like what's the storyline here? Or like in San Diego, I have some murals that are accessible. We have an original Keith Haring mural, which is graffiti. And then we also have one of the best graffiti artists in the world, Dime, flew out from Germany. And then we have an artist from Argentina that painted a mural in VR during COVID. So these are all forms of methods and mediums that people have access to and can use. So things like that. There are stories in every city that we want to push.
0: I'm just really in awe as I am going through the website, as I'm going through the information that was sent to me. It's such a unique experience. And I'm happy that you have a home here in Chicago. I'm looking here at the opening for San Diego. You have the Wisdom Project. Tell us about that.
1: So yes, the Wisdom Project, we're going to bring those to all of them because that's what I was talking about when we ask people, what do you know for sure? We have years of people writing these little cards, what they know for sure, and they're wonderful. I think it'll be a good book. Some of them are hilarious and some are poignant. It's a beautiful project. They just write down on a piece of paper what they know. In the middle of all this technology, we ask questions and we say that we don't know anything and we don't answer anything for you, but we want you to ask questions. But at the end of the museum, we ask you, what do you know for sure?
0: Thank you so much for sharing today. What is the
1: website for
0: more information?
1: Wndrmuseum.com. Actually,
0: before we go, I wanted to highlight something that you sent to me. You are the creative director for Wonder Museum. You are best known for your transformative work as a tattoo artist supporting people who have undergone mastectomy surgery. Tell us about that. That's such a wonderful thing to do.
1: Thank you. Yes. Before this job, I spent about 10 years, I started learning about various forms of life-threatening trauma and specifically mastectomy. My background is graphic design and how people see human user interface. And I saw that if you gather enough information, if you listen to people's stories, you can see what they want for themselves. And in doing so, you can create a work of art that kind of covers their bases and covers their needs. It's not based on what you think for that person. It's based on what they need for themselves. So that was beautiful. COVID really kind of squashed that a little bit. I kind of cornered the market on immunocompromised people. It was difficult. So I needed to find a way to continue to push curiosity and imagination, which to me are two attributes of empathy.
0: They certainly are. And I think it's a kind of reason to believe why you've landed here with WNDR Museum, to have that creative space as well as connecting with people.
1: Yes, Exactly. Connecting with people. Exactly. Yeah. Right. When you see someone that's 78 dancing in front of a screen or you see someone that's six years old, eyes lit up. There's so much beauty there in that moment and just the vulnerability of feeling safe to just be yourself.
0: And I'm glad you brought up the dance because I did see that with your various installations, you have dance across bright logic at the <laughs> WNDR studios. Light form. So if you'd like to expand upon that, because dance and music, these are all things that I think bring such joy to people.
1: They do. And if you feel a little bit of awe or excitement, so technology is just a tool, right? And it's how you use it. And so one of the things we have is a light floor. It has optical sensors, so it knows you're there. So let's say you do a dance or you create a movement, it will respond and it might leave a trail. It might go before you or it might go behind you. So it's neat to see how you affect a space. You do anyway, emotionally, figuratively, but like literally, this is a cool and fun way to affect a space around you with people seeing it.
0: Thank you so much for joining me, the website is wndrmuseum.com, here in Chicago, and then with expansions, if you can tell us the name of the cities and the expansions again, David.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, San Diego, Seattle, and Boston.
0: Great. Again, David, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your
0: time. Ladies and